This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Thank you. Um, my presentation, which I'll be making with Linda, is very much focused on an answer to the question that was asked in the last session about where is the gender lens on the global compact for action for refugee sorry, on refugees, and that's what I hope we can discuss a bit this morning. I start by a little history. Linda and I have been working on the protection of refugee women and girls now, 30 years for me and 20 for Linda, non-stop. So it's a long history, and I was very uh, heartened, actually, when um, Guy this morning said that we're in a perpetual struggle. And I think that we mustn't give that perpetual struggle away because over that 30 years, we've made gains, we've gone backwards. We've made gains and we've gone backwards. And I think uh, the good news is we've probably gone forward a little more than backwards. But with that sort of little history, Linda and I decided when we first became very aware of the global compact on refugees that perhaps we could bring our experience over those years towards working to ensure that there was a strong gender focus and maybe this was, has been said by so many pres presenters and um, people in the UN system, this is a great opportunity. I think Volker Turk said it's a minor miracle and that's how we see it. And can we use this minor miracle to once again try and raise the issues of facing women and girls and gender issues and make sure they're firmly entrenched whether we will or not, I don't know. As Beth said, it's a brutal and complex process of meetings, but also outcomes. And it's a constant fight to get women and girls and gender issues included. Um, at times, we're very proud that they're mainstreamed and there has been a push to mainstream them across all four pillars. But our experience has been that gender mainstreaming means gender invisibility. The whole issues just fall off the table and we're very scared that that might happen. With this in mind, we approached UNHCR at first and asked, could there be a gender rapporteur across all of the meetings? Someone who would particularly note gender, where gender should be included, where it was mentioned by states and by other major players. And it was decided that this was perhaps a little too controversial, a little too political. So we said, okay, how about a gender audit? We can sit quietly and audit the process without it being a formal rapportage. And they agreed to that. And so they engaged Linda and I to conduct a gender audit of the thematic meetings and the uh, dialogue which will take place in December. We also then requested a team of five refugee women to be part of that audit because we firmly believe that it is the refugee people themselves, both men and women, who have much greater knowledge and experience and have much clearer ideas of solutions that we ever will have as white academics. And UNHCR Geneva granted that and we have a fantastic team of five women working with us to audit, audit the processes. In my short presentation, I want to just look at why we thought it important to have the audit, and then Linda will report on the progress to date. We did have to sit down and really consider this. We worked, we were part of the team who pushed for um, a soft law conclusion on women and girls at risk. We got it, hurrah, this is great. We then looked at um, 
a risk assessment tool for women and girls that could be used across the world. It's now in place. Is it used? A little. We pushed to have refugee women included in the High Commissioner's um, celebrations, or should we say, um, for the 60th anniversary. And we had a terrific session where refugee women from camps across the world made strong presentations. And there were immediate commitments of about $32 million for programs because of their representation. But as in most things, gender soon, it's wonderful at the time. I work on a sort of make them cry principle. We can make whole audiences cry. We can make the states cry by having women and girls giving strong presentations and an immediate response, but then it gets forgotten again. And what we want, are uh, hoping we can use in this process is to somehow get beyond that short-term response, beyond making people cry and getting gender issues totally entrenched across the program of action that is an important part of the CRFF and the Global Compact. We sat down, we thought we'd better sit down ourselves and have a long, hard look about why, despite all the work, all the major steps forward, it was still failing. Why were the needs, particularly of women and girls, still not being acknowledged? We've come to a very clear conclusion that the international protection system is failing refugee women and girls. There is no doubt about it. There are very strong commitments related to gender equality and the rights of women and girls in the New York Declaration. And it's critically important that these be reflected across the four pillars. And yet, when we look at the concept papers for the thematic meetings so far, they're just about gender-free. Perhaps an assumption of gender, but nothing specific. When we look at the commitments, they reflect the reality that law and policy developed over the last 30 years to specifically address gender issues and the needs of women and girls are not working. Women and girls still suffer endemic and systematic sexual and gender-based violence. Their voices are often silenced and their massive capacity is ignored. While they are devalued in this way, we've lost 50% of the potential contribution that refugees can make to their own durable solutions, 50%. And we think that the major obstacles to the provision of adequate responses is the way that they're often designated in both law, policy, and practice. The most common labels for refugee women and girls in many documents are of minority and or vulnerable groups. These both reflect political and ideological positions and we have to really challenge these in the global compact on refugees if we are to move forward. Let's start with women and girls as minorities. Women and girls constitute a minimum of 50% of the refugee population. So they're certainly not a numeric minority. So going to good old Google, I looked up sociological definitions of minority. Right? Minorities in a sociological sense are people who are vulnerable, discriminated against and marginalized. And that is certainly the case with refugee women and girls. So perhaps minority is an exact descriptor, but it's not numeric and we have to change that around. The other one, and I was in Geneva last week at the last thematic meeting, 
again, very little mention of gender, but a lot of mention of vulnerable groups and a sort of implication that women were one of those. Women are not vulnerable per se. Yeah? Women are put into vulnerable situations. Refugee women are constantly in vulnerable situations. And the greatest barrier to getting out of that, the greatest barrier to them becoming an active part of refugee communities is that of sexual and gender-based violence. It is endemic. Refugee women are raped and abused and forced to trade sex for basic things such as food in food queues. Girls are forced to sleep with teachers in order to get scholastic materials and grades. We have done research in 19 different countries. We have interviewed thousands of women and girls over the years. The constant is rape and sexual abuse. And until we recognize and address that, and the impact it has not just on the woman and girl, but on her family, her community, her husband, her wife, her father, we are not going to be able to move to gender equality. And yes, refugee men and boys also get raped. And it is an equal human rights abuse, and we have to respond equally to raped men and women, girls and boys. But we have to acknowledge that there are significant differences. Women don't have special needs, they have different needs. If we just take rape, men, women who are raped suffer incredible psychological damage. They suffer often very physical damage. They're at danger of sexually transmitted diseases. Women and girls who are raped suffer the chance of pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy of rape. Young girls often become pregnant and die because they are too small to bear a child in a malnourished state that they live in, in refugee camps. That is so common. Women are thrown out of communities because of this. So we are arguing all that we're doing that if we're looking at gender equality, we have to look loud and clear and articulate sexual and gender-based violence as part of that. Can I quickly read two... We've got a very short list of questions we want answered, which really address what I've just said. How can we change the discourse about refugee women and girls away from this minority vulnerable group into a group who are strong, capable, and very able to take refugee protection forward? And how can we protect them from the violence that is the biggest barrier to this happening? Thank you. Thank you, Eileen. So given the enormous challenges, given the volumes of policy and practice guidelines that are failing, why are we bothering? Is it yet another pile of paper, as Beth said? In truth, when we read the New York Declaration, Eileen and I wanted to dance around the room. We didn't see it as a minor miracle for women and girls. We saw it as a major miracle. A UN General Assembly document agreed by consensus by 193 member states that firmly and clearly mentions and recognises the importance of gender equality, that clearly recognises 
the intersectional factors that compound the experiences of women to exclude and discriminate against them. And perhaps most importantly, that clearly recognises sexual and gender-based violence as a human rights abuse and not something subsumed under the label of sexual and reproductive health. A document that clearly recognises the importance of including women equally in decision-making, that clearly recognises that there are particular barriers to that inclusion. For us, in the same way that Volker Turk and others, Guy Goodwin-Gill, Beth Ferris, have highlighted the strengths of the document in reaffirming the normative legal framework, the fact is this was the first declaration specific to refugees and migrants. For refugee women and girls and other women and girls at risk outside the national protection of their states, this is the first consensus document specific to their needs. There have been great wins in the context of the UN Security Council, Resolution 1325, 1820, general recommendations in CEDAW. All of those human rights frameworks recognise refugee women, but this is a specific framework for them. So we feel there's much to hope for, and this is an enormous opportunity. So our challenge really uh, in the work that we've been doing through the gender audit is how do we recognise the complex and multi-layered politics? How do we move forward to develop clear and achievable commitments to operationalise this indirect partnership with refugee women, refugee men, girls and boys. And that's why the program of action is so important, because it's an opportunity to move from the great vision and commitment to practical implementation. And you heard from Madeleine Garlick many of the practical strategies that are currently being discussed. Our concern is to make sure that each and every aspect of those strategies accurately reflects the different needs of men and women, girls and boys. How do we operationalise these strong principled commitments to support transformation on the ground, to genuinely address discrimination against women and girls? And as Eileen said, to address the endemic sexual violence, which is a clear barrier to gender equality. Eileen has outlined the reasons why we proposed the gender audit to UNHCR. Beth has commented that gender has been significantly absent in all of the discussions. One of the recommendations in the New York Declaration is to mainstream a gender perspective. As Eileen said, that often means mainstreaming gender into oblivion. So what actually happens when we don't actively and consciously think about gender? When we don't ask ourselves in each and every situation, what's happening for women? What's happening for men? What's happening for girls? So one example, we are rightly appalled by the millions of young refugees languishing in camps and urban areas without access to secondary or tertiary education. But when we fail to disaggregate the numbers by gender, we fail to see the vast majority are girls. 
And then we fail to ask why. And most importantly, if we don't ask girls and women why, we don't see the different barriers. We don't see the fact that when the majority of girls don't have access to sanitary materials every month when they bleed, they don't go to school for a week. They fall behind. We don't see the fact, as Eileen said, that the fear of sexual and gender-based violence in the classroom keeps girls excluded and is a major barrier to gender equality. If we don't ask what are the particular risks that women asylum seekers face at sea, we don't hear, as Carol Batchelor of UNHCR recently said, that 100% have experienced rape and sexual violence. If we don't ask how single women survive alone on single rations in a camp, we don't hear that it's impossible unless they are forced to trade sex for food or as the delegate of the government of South Africa said in 2004, to make the decision to be raped by one man every night in a forced marriage rather than 100. Eileen's addressed the conceptual analysis of why the audit was needed. What did we actually do on the ground in Geneva in the October and the November thematic meetings? Our job was to assess is this great visionary commitment in the New York Declaration being translated into the documents, into the discussion, on the panels? Our job was to record, but we weren't innocent bystanders. Our job was to also intervene. So our analysis of the five thematic meetings, the July thematic meeting we did not attend. It was on past and current burden and responsibility sharing. The summary conclusion document of the meeting mentions women once, no mention of gender, no mention of sexual violence. In October, thematics meetings two and three, which I attended with an amazing team of women from refugee backgrounds, we documented, we intervened. In several panels, if it were not for our interventions from the floor, gender would not have been mentioned at all. In others, our interventions triggered the session chairs to pick up and reflect on gender. Despite the UN parity pledge that, most, that panels should have equal representation of men and women, most panellists were men. While there was strong participation, commitment to refugee participation through the participation of youth, this was generally gender blind. The differential needs of young women and young men were not discussed. While it had been UNHCR's hope that gender would be mainstreamed across panels, it was clear that without a dedicated speaker focusing actively on the gender issues or instructions on the chair to pick that up, that it didn't happen. So clearly, a truly mainstreamed gender needs a dedicated focus Progress in November, based on our initial report from um, December, uh, from October, we understand was much better. But the key challenge and the plea from many states, from Jordan to Kenya to Canada, um, was how do we do it? How do we move from the what to the how? What sort of specific, tangible recommendations can be put into practice? Our next challenge at the gender audit team is to 
bring together the different suggestions that have been made from states and NGOs to concretise those and to seek in the High Commissioner's dialogue to move forward some very tangible recommendations. Some of those include uh, updating and using the heightened risk identification tool, the critical importance of actually specifically naming sexual and gender-based violence and working with states to look at how local mechanisms can better respond. The idea of a strong community of practice, a way to gather all of the, the great ideas, and most critically, the importance of self-representation of refugee women on panels and in the meeting of highlighting the fact that women have huge capacities, of moving away from the excuse that is often used about why women don't contribute because of their culture. So challenging some of the stereotypical characterisations that we have of women. In closing, I'm excited to report that um, as a result of the advocacy of the gender audit team and the enormous support of UNHCR in Geneva, that there will now be a dedicated gender panel at the beginning of the second day on the High Commissioner's Dialogue. It will have gender parity. It will involve refugee young men, refugee young women, member states, UNHCR, others. Um, and particularly will actively involve governments from the south as well as from the north. So a critical and important window of opportunity that we and many others are doing our best to take advantage of. Thank you. Thank you very much to all our panellists for their contributions. We have some time for questions from the audience, so could I ask you to raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question, please. There is some, I can't see where, here, Tanya, thank you. I can just see a microphone. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you very much, Linda and Eileen, that was fascinating. Thank you to the other speakers. Um, it's great to have a win from the work you've done, I think it's amazing. Um, uh, looking at uh, people seeking asylum in Australia, we have 25,000 people that came by boat between 2012 and 2014. 20,000 are men, 5,000 are women. You know, what's happened to the women that are related to those men, they're hidden. We don't talk about them, we don't see them, we see the damaged men, and I think that it's a hidden problem, and they're back home God knows what's happening to them, and it's a, a, a real crime of our this current policy that we're leaving families in danger and not looking at family reunion because of the needs of, the, of, of women and children. Anyway, I just thought it's good to highlight it. Thank you. Can I just comment on that, Jane? Yes. Um, we, we are working also with... Uh, on the ground service providers working with asylum seeking women and very sadly even here in Australia they are reporting ongoing sexual and gender based violence and in some cases such poverty that um, survival sex is also having to be practiced so thank you for bringing that up. Any other questions or comments? Andrew Cowley. Sorry Andrew would you mind just waiting for the microphone? Thank you. Mention was made, I think it was Madeline, of a target of a million 
for resettlement as part of the comprehensive framework. Is that broken down by gender? Should it be? <laughs> Can I respond? <laughs> I think there are, Andrew, it's a great question. Um, you and ATSIA have certainly done better in recent years in the context of resettlement to report and record on numbers of women at risk who were settled and that's resettled and that's something that didn't happen in the past. So there's been some positive progress so there are some frameworks for that. I think um, your question in terms of needing to break down the resettlement numbers is critical. But we're also very, very concerned about some of the other complementary pathways for, in addition to resettlement, opening up opportunities for skilled labour migration, etc., in the sense that they are not broken down by gender. Um, and a fear that if places are lost from a risk-based resettlement program that focus only on skill, do we end up back in a situation like we saw with the Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Vietnamese camps, with women being left behind because of the multiple barriers they face to acquiring the sort of skills that states they want. So I think the, you know, one of the arguments we're making is the importance of having two separate pathways, and they're both equally important, but being really cognizant of the gender dimensions as well. Yeah, thank you for your presentation. Um, uh, and also thank you, um, Eileen and Linda, for the work that you've done <coughs> over many years. I won't say, won't emphasise how many years, but quite a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, from the Refugee Council of Australia's point of view, we've learnt a lot uh, from your work and your advocacy. And one of the things that we've learnt um, has been the engagement and inclusion of people who are or have been refugees um, in the dialogue about... Um, refugee policy and refugee solutions. I'm interested just in your thoughts and also yours, Phil, in relation to IDPs, um, about the, uh, to what extent the, you know, the, the work on these compacts creates greater opportunities for people who are actually directly affected by displacement to have a greater say um, in solutions. Um, and, you know, the more I think about it, the more I hear, I think the more critical it is. Um, uh, our organisation is working with um, some diasporas from Myanmar in, in Australia in relation to the, trying to promote um, dialogue about how, um, not unfortunately not in relation to Rakhine State, but in relation to other states in Myanmar, how a vision for voluntary, uh, sustainable seriously voluntary return could actually occur. And when you analyse um, opportunities, it's clear that ultimately the success or failure of any future voluntary return to Myanmar is going to depend on people feeling that they got their, they're able to return, that they have a sustainable future. So ultimately the success or failure is not going to be decided in some diplomatic conference. It's actually going to be decided on the ground by people moving. So how can we create more opportunities for those who ultimately will decide the success or failure of voluntary return, whether it's internal or across a border? How can we create opportunities f for people in those situations to have a, a much more viable say in the development of solutions? And to what extent does the global compacts actually create those opportunities? We might actually turn to each of the speakers to respond to Paul and, and make any final remarks. Thank you. Uh, 
Yes, it's an incredibly important question, and, and that's one of the reasons I've been focusing on these policies and laws at the domestic level, because that's the best mechanism whereby we can ensure that IDPs, whether they choose to return to their homes, uh, whether they get integrated elsewhere, or whether they resettle elsewhere within the state, will have proper protections. We'll also ensure that issues, particularly over property rights, are dealt with as well. Of course, that's one of the critical issues when it comes to IDP returns, is the question of what happens in terms of their property? Can they re-establish themselves? Can they regain that property? Or can they achieve other forms of compensation? Um, and that's, of course, established within the guiding principles. It's flagged in the Patero principles as well. Uh, but it's an ongoing issue, and it's one of the critical issues that these policies frequently fall over on. Uh, that either uh, you end up with judicial systems that can't properly process or adjudicate these claims, or that the government simply lacks capacity in order to provide compensation or other forms. Uh, uh, and so these are critical issues. So improving these policies, improving their implementation, uh, is a critical way of answering some of these key issues. Thanks, Paul. And uh, I also want to recognize the amazing work Refugee Council of Australia is doing in promoting voice of refugees in public forum. Outstanding. Um, it, I've just been at the last thematic meeting last week, and it, really positive was the emphasis from many states and players about, key stakeholders, about the importance of hearing refugee voices and refugee inclusion in all decision-making processes, right from local up to UN. And I think that's quite a sea change in the debate um, and something that could really um, come out of the com uh, global <coughs> compact on refugees and be a very strong outcome. I think one of the things that worries me a little is that as, um, as organizations, as academics and NGOs, we do tend to put refugees, oh, we need refugee voices, so let's grab some <coughs> refugees and give them a voice. And it just doesn't work like that. And sometimes that it's tokenism, tokenism, and even when it's not a tokenistic intent, if refugees are not given the support they need, think of the first time any of you went to a really formal meeting and you had to speak through the chair and you didn't know what to do and you didn't know how to put up your hand. It's really scary when you've got a university degree and it's your first language. When you're a refugee, and in particular when you're a refugee woman who have, might have no formal education, to suddenly be promoted up to be the spokesperson for your group or to take part in a formal meeting or a UN conference, for God's sake, is terrifying. So that this whole notion of representation right from the camp to the UN, I think we have to both promote it, but also assist people so they do it so that their full capacity is utilized. But I think, Paul, it's the, it's the only way. And it was really obvious last week it was a strong commitment. But it has another set of challenges as well. And I think it's fantastic to see it being championed at the kind of level of organizational and, and government leadership. But much of our work on the ground in countries will highlight that sometimes the biggest barriers to the recognition of the skills and capacity of refugees are local non-government organisations, international non-government organisations, local UNHCR staff, um, and sometimes that's directly seen as a threat to someone's job 
or that kind of classic line that refugees are so traumatised they couldn't possibly take leadership and assist themselves. So if we're going to do work to be supporting the participation of refugees, the work also has to be done with those frontline staff on the ground around allowing that and supporting it and recognising it. Would you please join with me once again in thanking our wonderful panellists this morning.